Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48, it's on page 43 if you have one of our Bibles. Uh, if you need a Bible, you're welcome to grab one from the table over there, or the bookshelves, I mean, and, um, and then keep that if you, if you need one. Uh, but it's on page 43 there. We're, we've dealt with some larger chunks of Scripture over these past couple uh, of weeks, uh, and, and today we're, we're going to look at a shorter scene that stands on its own, but it, then it also sets us up for what's coming in, in chapter 49, okay, and helps us kind of finish out uh, the rest of, of Genesis. We're only a couple chapters away from the finish here. We're going to hear the author um, use some I- almost identical wording to describe some things in this scene that, that he used to describe some things in an earlier scene in Jacob's lives, we're, uh, life. We're going to see some familiar things today in chapter 48. We're going to recognize a, a familiar theme that we've seen woven throughout the entire book of Genesis, and it'll prompt us then ultimately to answer, to ask and to answer this question, okay? Is inheritance a right or is it a gift? Is inheritance a right or is it a gift? So I want to pray and ask God to open his word to us, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray. Father, you've handed down your unchanging word from generation to to generation so that people might know you, might trust you, might follow you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do those things today through this unchanging word that you've given to us. And we pray it for Christ's glory and in his name. Amen. So my wife, Bree, and I recently updated our wills because the last time that we originally uh, wrote them, we only had two kids, okay? Now, considering the fact that we've doubled our offspring since then, and the youngest one just recently turned six a couple weeks ago, we kind of figured that it was time, right? I don't know if you've, if you've, if you've done a will. I don't know. I mean, the, the things that, that they ask you and the things that you have to try to figure out um, it's kind of overwhelming, right? It can be difficult to, to try to decide who gets what and, and why. Like, do I, do I piece everything out? Do, do we go by birth order? Do we go by gender? Do we go by our favorite child, right? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Listen, you know what happens when you pick favorites, right? You've been with us in Genesis. I'm not going to tell you how we decided. I'm just kidding. Here's the thing, though. Sometimes we look at spiritual inheritance the same way that we look at earthly inheritance. And when we do that, we tend to try to figure out who gets what based on the wrong thing. And so here's what we're going to see, Lord willing, in our passage this morning in Genesis 48. Spiritual inheritance is a matter of redemption, not a matter of right. Spiritual inheritance is a matter of redemption, not a matter of right. Let's dig in this morning. Genesis 48, verse 1. Sometime after this, Joseph was told, your father is weaker. So he he set out with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel summoned his strength and he sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. 
He said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make, you many, I will make many nations come from you, and I will give this land as a permanent possession to your future descendants. Your two sons, born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are now mine. Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me, just as Reuben and Simeon do. Children born, af- born to you after them will be yours and, and will be recorded under the names of their brothers with regard to their inheritance. When I was re- returning from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died along the way, some distance from Ephrath in the land of Canaan. I buried her there along the way to Ephrath. And then the author adds this little ed- editorial note for the readers. That is Bethlehem. Some time had passed since, since Jacob made Joseph swear a, an oath to him at the end of the last chapter, an oath to bury him in Canaan and not in Egypt after he had died, or after he died. And, and in that time frame, Jacob's health is failing. His strength got a lot worse between then and, and now. And as he was approaching death, Joseph heard about it. He was told about it. Hey, your, your father's getting weaker, Right? And so then he left with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he took them to see their grandpa. Now, throughout this whole chapter, there's a, there's a noticeable tenderness between Jacob and Joseph. That tenderness was evident in the very brief summary of their reunion back in chapter 46 when they embraced and they wept for a long time, right? But we know that that was just a, a, like a one or two sentence summary, and then it just it moved on because there were other things that were important in that chapter, but we're given a, a, more of a drawn-out picture here in, in, in this chapter of their relationship. And we're told in verse 2 that when Jacob heard that Joseph arrived, he, he summoned his strength and he sat up in bed, similar to the way his spirit revived when, his, when he first found out that his son Joseph was alive. You see, love strengthens the weak. And so this old man summons the strength that he has left, and, and he sits up at the edge of his bed. But Jacob didn't just show physical strength at the appearance of his beloved son. He also displayed spiritual strength as he recounted the, the appearance of God Almighty. He told Joseph about when God appeared to him the second time at Luz, also known to us as Bethel, after Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, which was Haran, where, where his uncle Laban was, right, where he fled to from the north, coming back into the, the land of Canaan. This took place all, all back in chapter 35 when God appeared to him the second time. After God uh, reaffirmed Jacob's new name, Israel, he said this in Genesis 35, 11 and 12. He said, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed an assembly of nations, will come from you and kings will descend from you. And I will give you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac. I will give the land to your future descendants. Jacob reiterated God's promises almost verbatim here to Joseph, almost word for word. Now, whenever the name God Almighty is used in Genesis, I believe it's about a half a dozen times, it's always in reference to the fruitful multiplication of offspring. And Jacob's reiteration of God's promise to make him fruitful and numerous helps us then have some context, helps us understand why he, he told Joseph, hey, your sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're mine now. 
Jacob was adopting them as his own sons, as a reflection of this fruitfulness that God had blessed him with. And also, so that Ephraim and Manasseh would each receive an inheritance from Jacob along with the rest of his sons. Now, let's think about this for a second, right? Because if he gives Ephraim and Manasseh each a portion of the inheritance, what's he doing? What about Joseph? Joseph is the son. These are the grandsons, right? It might seem like he's, he's going around his favorite son, shortchanging him out of any inheritance. But by giving each of Joseph's sons a portion of the inheritance, Jacob was actually giving Joseph himself a double portion. Only the firstborn son got the double portion. That should have been Reuben. But what happened to Reuben? He defiled his father's bed by sleeping with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. And then Simeon and Levi, number two and three in the birth order, they gave up their shot at the birthright when they vengefully murdered all the men of Shechem. And so Jacob gave Reuben's birthright away to Joseph instead. That's why he said, Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me just as Reuben and Simeon do. He's not just saying random names of sons. That's number one and number two. He told Joseph that Ephraim and Manasseh would be recorded under Jacob's name while that any future children that Joseph had would be then absorbed into the tribes of Ephraim and, and Manasseh. They'd be recorded under their names on Joseph's behalf. And while verse 7 may seem like this random memory at first, he's sitting here talking to, to Joseph about Manasseh and Ephraim, and then suddenly Rachel comes up in the picture. Jacob's recounting here of her death ties into everything else that he's already said. He started this conversation by recounting the time that God appeared to him and, and promised uh, in the promised land after he returned from the north, from Paddan Aram. And he talked about how God promised to multiply his offspring and give him the land as an inheritance. And then Jacob applied that promise by adopting Joseph's two sons and bumping them up in his will. And then he mentioned that to his sorrow, his wife Rachel, his beloved wife Rachel, died in the promised land. Do you guys remember what Manasseh's and Ephraim's names mean? We learned this in chapter 41. Joseph named the, his firstborn son Manasseh because God had made Joseph forget all of his hardship. Manasseh means forgetful or to forget. And he named his second son Ephraim because God had made Joseph fruitful in the land of his affliction. Ephraim means doubly fruitful. By adopting Joseph's sons as his own, Jacob was also establishing them as Rachel's sons, relieving his sorrow and hardship over her death and making her doubly fruitful even though she was only able to give him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Now she would be credited with four. By adopting Joseph's sons as his own, Jacob elevated his younger son Joseph over his older son Reuben as the firstborn. He got the double portion. He would, he would assume leadership of the family after his father died. But verse 5 gives us a hint that Joseph was not the only younger brother who would be elevated over the older brother in this story. You notice what Jacob did when he called his grandsons, when he spoke their names? He switched the order. The author didn't do that at the beginning. He said Manasseh and Ephraim. But when Jacob says their names, he mentioned Ephraim first. 
And that's what sets us up for what would happen next. Look at verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons God has given me here. And so Israel said, Bring them to me and I will bless them. Now his eyesight was poor because of his old age. He could hardly see. Joseph brought them to him and he kissed and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I I never expected to see your face again, but now God has even let me see your offspring. Then Joseph took them from his father's knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Now, this scene has an air of familiarity to it, doesn't it? It's almost like like a mashup of two earlier scenes in Genesis. The first one when Jacob stole Esau's blessing in chapter 27, and the second one when Jacob reunited with Esau in chapter 33. In in chapter 27, Isaac was old, and his eyes were so weak that that he could not see. Very similar wording is used to describe Jacob here in verse 10. The only difference here is it says that Jacob was hardly able to see. He, he, he could hardly see, but his eyes hadn't totally failed him yet. He, he, he was, um, uh, uh, as Isaac's had when Jacob entered his, his tent pretending to be Esau. Isaac embraced and kissed Jacob in order to try and figure out who he really was, if he was really who he said he was, right? He said, I'm your son, Esau. Well, come in closer. Let me, let me kiss my son. He smelled him. He felt him. Esau was hairy. He smelled like outdoors, Right? Isaac was testing him. He said the hands felt like Esau's, but the voice sounded like Jacob's. We remember the story. Jacob deceived Isaac into giving him the blessing of the firstborn instead of giving it to Esau. And Esau got so angry, what did he want to do? He wanted to kill Jacob. And so Jacob fled north to Paddan Aram, to Haran, to his uncle Laban in order to keep from being killed. And while he was there, he found a wife two actually, and each one of them gave their slave woman to him to be another wife. And by the time he left Paddan Aram and reunited with Esau, he had a really large family. And then we get to Genesis 33 when they meet. Jacob bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother, and Esau ran to meet him. He embraced and kissed Jacob, and they both wept together. Esau looked up, and he saw the women and children, and he asked what Jacob just asked. Who are these? And Jacob told him, these are the children God has graciously given me. This is what Joseph just said. And Jacob told him, these are the, the, the children that God has graciously given me. And, Esau, and he also told Esau, I've seen your face, and it's like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. God has been gracious to me, and I have everything I need. There's so much language overlap between those two stories and this one, but there's one noticeable difference. Jacob was now the old man giving the blessing instead of the young man trying to steal it, right? He knew that his grandsons were there with Joseph because he had already called them by name and adopted them as his own, but his poor eyesight made it difficult for him to tell them apart from one another. But he wasn't kissing and embracing them to try to to figure out which one was which, he was overwhelmed and rejoicing in God's grace and provision. He never expected to see uh, Joseph's face again. And now God had not only given him the ability to see Joseph, but the next generation. 
In the blurred faces of his grandsons, Jacob had clearly seen God's grace and faithfulness to him, grace that transformed a deceitful young man who stole a blessing into a tender-hearted old man who was eager to give one. And faithfulness to keep his covenant promises by continuing Jacob's family line. When Jacob stole the blessing, he was, he was the only son in the room, right? You remember that? Like he got out just in time when, when Esau came in, but by then it was too late. So he's able to convince Isaac that he was the older brother. This time, though, both young men are standing there together with Grandpa. So their blessing should have been straightforward, right? Pretty easy, even though he can't see so great. Look at verse 13. Then Joseph took them both with his right hand Ephraim toward Israel's left and his left hand Manasseh toward Israel's right, and he brought them to Israel. But Israel stretched out his right hand, and he put, on the, put it on the head of Ephraim, the younger. And crossing his hands, put his left hand on Manasseh's head, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Joseph and said, The God before my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys and may they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow to be numerous within the land. Joseph knew that his father's eyesight was bad, so he thought he'd be a helpful son and arrange his sons in the correct age order for Jacob so that each one would, would receive the appropriate blessing. Now, the right hand was a symbol of strength and status and priority, and so the son who was under the right hand would receive a greater blessing than the son who was under the left hand. And so since Jacob was facing, uh, or Joseph was facing Jacob like I'm facing you right now, he switched positions of his own sons in his, of his sons in his own hands so that they'd be correct in the correct positions for uh, Jacob's hands, okay? So hold up your right hand for a second, okay? So if I'm, if I'm Joseph, I have Manasseh here on my left side so that he's on your right side. Why? Because he's the firstborn, right? He should get the priority and the status and the blessing. So I have Ephraim over here on my right side so that he's on your left side. Okay, so we have that picture clear. But then as Israel reached out, what did he do? He reached out to put his hands on their heads and he crossed them, putting his right hand on the younger son, on Ephraim, and his left hand on Manasseh. He gave the younger brother priority over the older brother, just as God had given him, the younger brother, priority over Esau, the older brother. And even though he was blessing Joseph's sons, it tells us right here that Jacob was blessing Joseph through them. Verse 15 tells us that. And his blessing consisted of two parts. Part one was identifying the God of blessing using three uh, the statements. And part two was invoking the blessing of God using three may statements. May he, may they, may they. Okay? Look at how he described God in verse 15 in the first part of verse 16. The first thing Jacob did was call God the God of my fathers Abraham, uh, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. That's how God described himself when he first appeared to, to Jacob. 
at Bethel, and he promised him the same things that he promised Jacob's fathers. I'm the God of your father Isaac and your grandfather Abraham. Jacob was making it clear to Joseph, this is the same God who made the covenant and, and, and kept it within my family line. Abraham identified this God for Isaac. Isaac identified this God for Jacob. Now Jacob was identifying this God for his sons and grandsons. We've also seen that word walked in other places in Genesis. You remember? Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. It's a word that symbolizes faith and trust in God. The faith, that faith and trust was broken in the Garden of Eden after their sinful rebellion against God. When Adam and Eve heard him walking in the garden, same word there in the Hebrew, when they heard him walking, what did they do? They didn't walk with him. They hid. Why? Because they were ashamed of what they'd done. We know the fallout from that. They were exiled from the garden and, and would experience pain and toil and death because of their rebellion. But we also know the promise that God made to them that one day one of Eve's offspring would undo the curse of, of sin by crushing the serpent's head after the serpent crushed his heel. We are on the other side of that promise. The serpent crushers already come, right? And because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, now we can walk with God through faith in Christ. And one day all of God's covenant people will be able to walk with him again, not just metaphorically through faith, but in reality, in person, face to face with the living God. As we read Jacob's description of God here, we ought to be encouraged to know that the God before whom he and his fathers walked, the God before whom Enoch walked and, and, and uh, Noah walked, is the same God before whom we walk, now in faith and soon in person, because he's the God who keeps his promises from the very beginning. He's faithful. He's faithful. Jacob also called God the God who's been my shepherd all my life to this day. Back in chapter 28, when God identified himself to Jacob as the God of Abraham and Isaac, he also promised to be with Jacob and watch over him wherever he went. That's what a shepherd does, right? That's what God does. That's what God did for Jacob. Even though Jacob told Pharaoh, we, we saw this last week, that, that my years have been few and hard, he still understood that God had guided him, cared for him shepherded him all his life, and Jacob recognized that God was continuing to shepherd him, even now in the blessing that he was giving to his grandsons. Can you recall all the ways that God has faithfully shepherded you all your life to this day? Jacob also called God the angel who has redeemed me from all harm. This is the only place in Genesis where the word redeem shows up. And it carries this sense of God rescuing and saving Jacob from, from harm and, and claiming Jacob for himself. God as Redeemer will be a huge theme that gets developed in the book of Exodus and, and throughout then the rest of Scripture. God rescued Jacob from Esau, from Laban, from the Canaanites after Jacob's sons uh, murdered and, and, and uh, plundered the city of Shechem. And he rescued Jacob from all of those people because he claimed Jacob and Jacob's descendants for himself, but also God redeemed, God rescued Jacob from Jacob. 
God is the great redeemer who cares for his people, who rescues them and claims them as his own through his son, Jesus Christ, who chose not to be rescued from the cross, but instead willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for our redemption. He took the guilt of our sin upon himself, and he paid the debt of our sin through his death on the cross, and he rescued us from God's righteous wrath by giving us his own righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. And he rescued us from the power of sin and Satan and death by rising from the dead on the third day. And he shepherds us through this life so that though we experience trouble and hardship and pain, though our days might be few and hard, all of it will ultimately lose its grip on us because Christ has truly and already redeemed us from all harm. Now that we've identified the God of blessing, let's look at how Jacob invoked the blessings of this God. First, he asked for it outright. May God bless these boys. He was asking for God to show them his favor and abundance, but not just in a general way, in a covenantal way. Look at the second May statement in verse 16. He said, May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Back in chapter 12, when God began the covenant with Abraham, he told him, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And throughout Israel's history, God was known as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Here, Jacob was asking God to allow Ephraim and Manasseh to be called Jacob's sons, to be called Isaac's grandsons, Abraham's great-grandsons. In essence, he was asking God to move them up a generation so that their status would be equal to that of Jacob's other sons who would become the fathers of the tribes that would make up the nation of Israel. And that leads us to Jacob's third request. May they grow to be numerous within the land. He was asking God to include Ephraim and Manasseh in his covenant promises of land and offspring and blessing. And that's exactly what God did. When the time came for each tribe to receive their inheritance of the promised land, when they finally came into Canaan, The tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh were included. They were each given a portion because the Lord had blessed them and made them numerous in the land. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 16 and 17. But as Jacob was giving the blessing, Jodas, Jodas, just combined two words there, Joseph noticed the placement of his hands. And he said, "Uh uh-oh, right? Let's look what happened, verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, he thought it was a mistake. He took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's. Joseph said to his father, not that way, my father. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will will become a tribe, and he too will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his offspring will become a populous nation. So he blessed them that day, putting Ephraim before Manasseh, when he said, the nation of Israel will invoke blessings by you, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob had once deceived his father Isaac, who had poor eyesight, in order to steal the blessing for himself. And the result was that Jacob, the younger brother, received the blessing that should have belonged to the older brother, Esau, at least by birthright. Here, Joseph, 
who we know like, has been sort of the ideal person in all of his stories, right? He tried to correct his father, Jacob, who had poor eyesight in order to keep him from making a mistake, in order to keep him from messing it up, to keep the younger brother, Ephraim, from receiving the blessing that belonged to the older brother, Manasseh. Well, hold on. Dad, wait. That's not right. Manasseh's the firstborn. He's the older one. Even though Jacob's eyesight was weak, his mind was strong. He didn't cross his hands by mistake. He knew what he was doing. I know, my son. I know. He crossed his hands on purpose because he intended to give the younger brother the blessing of the firstborn. He wasn't negating the covenant blessing that he just gave to both of them, but he was specifying the degree to which each of them would experience that blessing. Manasseh would become a notable tribe, but Ephraim would become a populous nation. Moses blesses the tribes of Israel in Deuteronomy 33. We'll look at some of that next week as we compare between what, what Jacob does in his blessing in, in Genesis 49. But he talks about Ephraim's ten thousands and Manasseh's thousands. This carries on. Ephraim, not Manasseh, would have the strength and the status and the priority. When the people of Israel finally entered the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, this generation that Moses wrote Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy for, when they finally were ready to go in and take their inheritance, you know who led them in? It wasn't Moses. It was Joshua. You know what tribe Joshua was from? Ephraim. It's from Ephraim. He's the leader. He's the one with strength. Be strong and courageous. He's the one with status. Moses transferred that publicly in front of all of Israel so that they could see that Joshua was God's chosen man. He was the one with priority because he was the one that would help divvy up the inheritance. You know what Joshua's name means? Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. But after the people of Israel settled in the land of Canaan, everyone began to do what was right in his own eyes, and so God allowed foreign nations to, to oppress them, and he would raise up judges to, to deliver them from the oppression, to lead them to God again in repentance and worship, and to restore peace to the nation. One of the judges that God raised up was a man named Gideon. Maybe you've, you've heard of him. You know what tribe he came from? Manasseh. Manasseh. But this cycle of sin and judgment and repentance and peace, it continued. And, and, and not even Gideon, not even Joshua. Joshua was gone by then. None of them could keep Israel from continual rebellion against God. And so God eventually gave them a king. And the first king, Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, failed miserably. And God replaced him with David from the tribe of Judah. 
And after David, the kingdom split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember in verse 16 when Jacob said, may they be called by my name? The northern kingdom of Israel would also be referred to as Ephraim. The two names would become synonymous with each other. They'd be used interchangeably throughout the rest of the Old Testament. I believe even Jesus uses that name different times. If you're familiar with Israel's history, you're aware that the split into two kingdoms was a bad thing and not a good thing. This wasn't multiplication. This was division. And it it pit the house of Joseph against the house of Judah, Ephraim and Judah. The younger brother who was given the birthright and the older brother who should have received it after Reuben and Simeon and Levi disqualified themselves. Judah, uh, Judah was four. He was fourth in line. We've already begun to feel this tension building in these last chapters of Genesis, causing us to wonder, from which son will the, will the covenant line continue? Will the serpent crusher come? Joseph or, or Judah? And we'll see that answer more clearly next week when we look at the blessings that Jacob gives his 12 sons. But we already know that answer, right? We've talked about this. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. But the original audience of Genesis, this, this, the, these children of Israel who were about to enter the promised land and take the inheritance, they didn't know that yet at this point as they're rehearsing the history of their, of their people. And at this point, all signs point to Joseph through Ephraim. And they're standing there watching a man named Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim tell them, let's go. Joseph received the birthright, and his sons received the covenant blessing. The younger was given priority over the older, which has been a common theme throughout the book of Genesis. Seth over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, now Ephraim over Manasseh, and Joseph over the other 11 brothers. We have a couple verses left. Let's look at how this ends. Verse 21, Israel said to Joseph, look, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Over and above what I'm giving your brothers, I'm giving you the mountain slope that I took from the Amorites with my sword and bow. Again, Israel's body may have been weak, but his faith was strong. He he knew that he didn't have much time left, but he also knew that God would be faithful to keep his promises. God had told Jacob that he would be with him in Egypt and he would bring him back. Here, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, told Joseph that God would do the same thing for him. Again, almost repeating God's words verbatim. Not only did Jacob hand down the covenant promise to Joseph, but he also handed down an extra portion of land to him. Now, there's nothing, you can thumb back through Genesis, you won't find Anything recorded in Genesis about Jacob taking a mountain slope from the Amorites with his sword and bow. But the term Amorites here is most likely being used to refer to the people of Canaan in general, which includes Girgashites and Jebusites and Hethites and a bunch of other ites. That's something that we have seen in Genesis before, using one name to sort of lump them all in. And the Hebrew word for mountain slope here is Shechem. Shechem. Jacob was most likely referring to the incident back in chapter 34 when Simeon and Levi went through the city with their swords 
and they murdered vengefully every male in the city while the rest of his brothers plundered it in response to the defilement of their sister Dinah. Now, they murdered and they plundered without Jacob's approval, but they were acting as his representatives. If you remember, Jacob was super passive in that. And so they went in his place and they did these things. Now, we're not told specifically. We know Jacob bought some land from Hamer, the Hethite, there before this happened. We're not told specifically that 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 land became his, but it seems that way. And so it was his to do with whatever he wanted, and so he gave it to Joseph. Once again, elevating the younger brother over the older brothers. That, that, That will be the place that Joseph ends up getting buried, where they finally lay his bones. Now, was Jacob right to do all of this? Was he right to cross his hands and, and bless Ephraim over Manasseh, even though Manasseh was the firstborn? Was he right to give Joseph the firstborn status over Reuben by giving him a double portion through Ephraim and Manasseh? How do you decide here who gets what? Right? Is inheritance a right or is it a gift? It's one thing to divvy up your possessions among your children for them to do with whatever they want after you're gone. It's another thing to divvy up God's covenant blessings. Those weren't Jacob's to give to whomever he pleased, nor were they guaranteed to any of his sons because of their natural birthright. God's covenant blessings are God's to give to whomever he chooses. Why? Because he's the creator of the covenant. He's the creator of the ones with whom he makes the covenant. Jacob wasn't just giving Joseph a double portion of land. He was giving Joseph a double portion of covenant land. He wasn't just blessing the the grandsons. He was giving them a covenant blessing. Jacob once had a reputation of being manipulative and, and deceptive, but there's no manipulation, no deception here, nor was there any confusion on his part. I know, my son. I know. He was decisively passing on the covenant blessings and inheritance in accordance with God's own determination. Hebrews 11 records this, tells us, says, by faith, when he was dying, Jacob blessed each of the sons of Joseph. By faith, he was trusting in the Lord. The recipients of these covenant blessings were not the ones that had the natural right to them, but the ones who'd been given that right supernaturally. And that's because God was sovereignly working out his plan of redemption. Even though it seems at this point that the promised serpent crusher would come from Joseph's line through Ephraim, God's full plan hadn't been revealed yet. Psalm 78, 67 through 72 says, He rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He chose instead the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built a sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, to look to, and took him from the sheep pens. He, he brought him from tending ewes to be shepherd over God's people. Over Jacob, over Israel, God's inheritance. He shepherded them with a pure heart and he guided them with skillful hands. The God who shepherded Jacob his whole life ultimately chose the house of the older brother, Judah, over the younger brother, Joseph. But he chose the youngest brother, David, 
over the other seven brothers, the older brothers. He chose David as the shepherd king of Israel. And through David's line, God promised to raise up the true and eternal shepherd king who would be made like his brothers and his sisters in every way, the son of God taking humanity upon himself so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest who would make atonement for the sins of his people through the shedding of his own blood. You know what Jesus' name means? Yeshua. God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. We are heirs of a new covenant through the blood of Christ. And God has made us heirs because he's adopted us as his own children through the redeeming work of Jesus. We now belong to the Father just as Christ does. Think about that for a minute. John 17, Jesus prays this. Lord, let them be one just as you and I are one. The love that you have for me let them have that love. And now we're called by his name. There's a reason we're called Christians. We had no natural right to any of this. No works of our own could, could, could purchase this for us. This right was given to us supernaturally through faith in our older brother, in Jesus so we ought to respond to what we've been given by, by bowing low in humility, in worship to the giver, by joyfully loving and obeying our Heavenly Father who adopted us, by, by being conformed more and more into the likeness of our brother, Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Not that he was born first, but that he had the right We ought to walk with him through faith and relying upon the shepherding guidance of his word and his spirit. And when, he, when, when we see his hand of blessing come to rest on, on someone we might think is the wrong person. You ever done that? May we not say, no, my father, not that one. Not that one. This one. Instead, we should trust in God's sovereign grace and pray that when we see him blessing others with the gift of faith and repentance, that he continues to root that into their hearts, that he continues to, to make his children more numerous in the world. We should see the church as the growing family of God and seek to be a blessing to our brothers and sisters in Christ rather than putting ourselves before one another. And we shouldn't grow attached to the temporary possessions that we've been given in this life, no matter how we've inherited them. Because instead... We should remain content as we wait for our eternal inheritance to come. Treasure in heaven where moth cannot destroy, where thief cannot steal. See, spiritual inheritance is a matter of redemption, not a matter of right. It's not based on birth order. It's not based on gender. It's not based on favoritism. It's based on the tender-hearted and gracious love of our heavenly Father and his new covenant promises in his beloved son, Jesus Christ who freely gave up his rights as firstborn so that we could be redeemed. So let's be concerned with leaving an inheritance to the next generation that will last. 
an inheritance of faith. May our heavenly Father adopt them as his own. May the shepherd of our lives bless them with redemption. And may they be called by his name. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for the gift of salvation, redemption that you've given to us freely in Jesus Christ. Something we could never take on our own, something we could never earn by position. Something only you can give in your goodness and mercy. Lord, would you keep our hearts humble at the thought that you would give that to us and draw our hearts back to Jesus always in greater praise, greater obedience, greater joy. We pray this in his name. Amen.